0: Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast.
1: Welcome back to Endurance Innovation, everyone. And uh, today it's just Andrew and myself, and we are having another Shorts episode. So this is where... We've collected over the the past couple of weeks um, some things that we've been thinking about, some things that we've done, and uh, things that we think are worthy of note. So uh, we're going to kick things off with the story of, uh, of Stack and um, the contactless trainer that made them the household triathlon name that they are today.
0: All right. Um, so this is actually kind of funny because I've told the story quite a number of times and it, it almost feels like I'm reading from a script now. Uh, but that's that's fine. Um, I think the the things that I really. I'll interrupt want to go
1: you, Andrew. <laughs> so this is my case in point. This is what I'm going to do to make it so that it doesn't feel so scripted. I'll be an asshole and uh, interject.
0: Okay. I'm counting on you for that. <laughs> um, yeah, so the the whole story um, was basically like I never wanted to be an entrepreneur. I never wanted to do any of that stuff. I liked innovating and I liked trying new things, but it was never about let's find a business that works. So the story itself actually started out at Canada's Wonderland, which is a very weird place to start a uh, a sports based company. <laughs> All good things start at Canada's Wonderland. <laughs> yes, and it didn't even involve. Well, actually, it did involve a little bit of nausea. So. Um, but uh, basically, I was sitting down recovering from uh, one of the the rides there, um, so Drop Zone, which I think has been renamed Drop Tower because of copyright stuff that goes on. Um, so they they use a magnetic braking system for this. So I was sitting there watching, thinking, like, isn't this cool? Like, there's got to be some application for this uh, this eddy current braking system. And all it is is a bunch of really powerful magnets on each of the carriages. And you're bringing it from, I don't know, 120, 130 kilometers an hour, basically down to zero in a matter of a few meters and just a, a few seconds of deceleration. And I was just watching this thinking like, there's got to be another application for this. This is pretty cool stuff. And I, I think the first inclination was, you know, let's figure out if we can make a more aerodynamic bike brake. So I started playing around with it thinking okay like we've got to slow down the wheel you know it's something you can hide in the the fairing um and then just be clever about it but uh, it turned out there really wasn't enough braking force um, and the other kind of funny problem and locomotives experience this because they use similar brakes but there's no holding power at stop so you have to be moving in order to generate resistance so oh, if you're cool. not okay. moving it'll just continue rolling so <laughs> there's. Um, Yeah, so not great for locomotives. It's good to to bring it to a stop or close to a stop, but then you need some kind of mechanical friction brake. So, but anyway. So it's a a brake that slows you down only. Exactly. It relies on motion. So um, when you're at a stop, there's no motion and there's no braking force. So you'll just kind of roll slowly. (laughs) So... (laughs) Kind of like the parking <laughs> brake on my first car.
1: <laughs> so yeah, I was just I just had this me- mental image in my in my head of like very slowly rolling into traffic. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, I feel like I've been there back in my teenage years. <laughs> so <laughs> um, yeah, so the I I came back and I talked to a friend of mine, Art Hare, about this idea, and he said ah, that's it's kind of a shitty idea for a bike break. But uh, <laughs> um, why don't we? look at using it as a trainer because all you're trying to do is is waste energy and it's it's great because it doesn't make any noise because at the time he lived in an apartment with uh, with a bunch of um older generations who didn't appreciate noise quite as much uh went to bed early things like that so um we we just basically tried to make a trainer out of it. So I think the first iteration actually involved me uh, gluing some magnets to a piece of plywood uh, and then holding it near the rim while we had it set up on another trainer and just seeing, like, will this generate resistance? So when I got it near the rim, uh, the reaction force almost pulled my hand right into the rim because I wasn't <laughs> expecting that. So we've got nice. these spokes spinning at, like, 40 kilometers an hour plus, And then uh, I almost lost a finger there. So that was kind of the first story of, or the first part of the the development. And from there it was just like, how many magnets can we glue onto a piece of wood that we use a trainer frame to screw into place? So <laughs> the, the first version, it, it was not glamorous at all. Um, it was the farthest from glamorous. It was basically taking scrap pieces, of wood, screwing them into a, I think we used an old manure frame because it mounted from both sides. Okay. And, uh, yeah, the installation time for the bike was around 10 minutes and it required a, <laughs> a drill. Um, so that was, yeah, not ideal. How do you have photos of all of these? Uh, we saved a lot of the like the actual prototypes. I don't know if we took a lot of pictures, though. That's a good point. Oh,
1: yeah. Um, well, if you still have them, you should set, you should take some photos so we can put them up in our show notes because that oh, would be man. that'd be fun to see.
0: <laughs> I don't even know if I want to show these, <laughs> but <laughs> there some of them were pretty embarrassing. But it also gives you an idea of how a lot of startups start off, um, and I think that's maybe more what I want to focus on with this recap uh, is just the the pain or like the non glamorous nature of a startup um, and running your own business, but. Um, I'll I'll stick to the trainer for now, and then we'll kind of transition. Um, But the next step for us was just continued development. So you just iterate, iterate, iterate until you have something. And we had tried a whole bunch of different things. Like, we tried smaller magnets on a really long uh, strip of aluminum. So it was – my brother was a machinist, which was super helpful. Oh, nice. But we had – uh, or I had designed something that he made, um, so he deserves all the credit there, but uh, it was all these little magnets that actually mounted to the um, the brake pad holder on my my old P2. Huh. Um, so we mounted that uh, just near the rear wheel, and I was able to get like 240, 250 watts out of it. And we thought, okay, there's something here. Like, this is enough resistance to start. Um, not a ton yet, but we're, we're definitely onto something. And the it basically just involved more magnets and just testing out different configurations. And we we played with a bunch of things like keeping all the magnets uh, in the same pole. So they were all facing north. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the opposite side was all facing south. And then we tried alternating. Then we tried bigger magnets. Um, we tried different arrangements. And it was interesting because I think the second iteration we tried, which was this alternating half-inch cube, of uh, neodymium magnets ended up being the strongest thing we've ever tried. And we played with a whole bunch of different magnets, but it was like, we got lucky right off the start, which almost never happens in terms of development. So um, so we we do have that to thank. Uh, but going through all these different iterations, it's almost frustrating because you're like, there's no way the second iteration could have been the fastest. So I've got to keep trying. And um, I've got these, uh, I, I call them the widowmakers makers, but they're um, one inch by one inch by two inch magnet cubes. And I think they've got a separation force of like three or 400 pounds. What? Um, okay. so yeah, they are absolutely insane and they didn't work as well as these other cubes, but yet they're, they're ready to remove any appendage that gets in between them. So <laughs> how like, big, how big are they? One inch by one inch? One by one by two, I think. Oh, wow. Um, okay. So yeah, they have so, a little bit
1: of mass to them too. So they would definitely be, you know, handled with care.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Every time I handle those, I wear gloves Um, just because like pinched skin is unfortunate and painful, but losing a finger is much more permanent. (laughs) Yes. How do you even separate
1: Uh, something like that? Like you would have to prime apart?
0: Yeah. So if you try to pull them straight apart, that doesn't work well. It's actually shearing them apart that seems to work Uh, the best. Um, But you basically have to find a table and put all your weight on it um, to, to push one down and you separate them that way but what you learn very quickly is that nothing is safe near magnets so you'll set one down on a desk or a counter or something and you have maybe a screwdriver in your hand and you bring it within (laughs) i don't know a few centimeters of the magnet and the magnet jumps up and goes after it Um, (laughs) so, so you you learn quickly there's lots of swearing involved but um it's it's interesting working with magnets, and after a while, you kind of develop a bit of a sixth sense about it. Um, but it's just the first little bit is really frustrating because they stick to anything steel. They follow right. other magnets around. Um, <laughs> like even putting like on opposite sides of the table is kind of risky because uh, what'll happen is you see the one magnet starting to get attracted, and then you like pull it away in reaction, and um, and then you attract the other, the other one. one. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh man! So. Uh, so magnets are are challenging um, it's it's one of those handle with care situations uh, so anyway we we continued development and we found out that um, we found out very quickly that hey, we need these wheel weights as well um, because there 's just not enough inertia so when we were actually doing the testing um the first couple versions felt pretty good for road feel because there just wasn't enough resistance that the inertia was a problem Um, but as we developed a more and more powerful version um it slowed down the wheel so quickly that um that we just needed to add these wheel weights so that was a whole separate set of development and i don't really want to go into the details now because it was just it was a little bit tedious but um the, the story then goes on to the idea of like, okay, we've got an interesting product here. It doesn't seem to exist anywhere else. Um, and no one else seems to have thought of this idea, but it also seems very simple at the same time. And I think one of the hallmarks of good innovation is looking at something very obvious that's, um, or it's obvious in retrospect, but uh, something like the wheel, right? Everyone takes the wheel for granted, but the first person who invented that Like that's a huge leap to be able to convert linear motion into rotary motion, so that you can transport something easily. Um, But yeah, now we just completely take it for granted and think, oh, I could have invented that. But at the time, like that would have been such a huge mental leap. And not that I'm comparing this to the wheel, but (laughs) it sounds like uh, you kind of are, Andrew. More the (laughs) I'm I'm comparing the process (laughs) or the afterthought, maybe. but when you when you look at it in retrospect, you think, oh, this is obvious. How how did someone not think of this before? And that's where we kind of were. So we got into this almost panic where we said, okay, we need to develop it, bring it to market. Um, we'll take advantage of the strengths of the design, which was being compact and lightweight, and you know, make a, a thin trainer that could store anywhere, um, provided enough resistance for people. And and we said, okay, let's uh, let's try Kickstarter because we weren't able to self fund it, but We thought, you know, Kickstarter is gaining a lot of momentum. There's a lot of people talking about it. Um, The hardware play on Kickstarter is always a bit of a risk, Um, but we thought, okay, we've got enough engineering and manufacturing experience that we can probably pull this off. So we put together a an initial video, and we decided to put together um, just the the description. And we wanted to keep it fairly light and show that we had a bit of a sense of humor. So um, we put together this. Uh, well this initial video which was shot in my basement and at the time we sent uh, a trainer to DC Rainmaker and he's the one I really credit with um, with helping catapult us into the limelight without him we probably wouldn't have done much but he believed in the design from the start he thought it was really interesting and gave us a a lot of good feedback initially and one of his first points of feedback was like, this video you shot is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Get your marketing straight. <laughs> oh, yeah. And and that was kind of the first eye-opening experience with like, hey, you need to be more than engineers. Like running a business is not just about having a good product. You need to be able to show it. So we, we got a local videographer and he put together a really slick little video. Um, and again, this showed a little bit of a sense of humor and was having a little fun with it. And... We, we put this video up on Kickstarter and, and Ray said, you know, like, um, he, he was going to write a review for us. He didn't say what it was going to be like, but he was going to release it right when we timed our Kickstarter to open. oh nice. And, and the morning of like, I kept, I woke up at like 3am and kept checking my, <laughs> e- or not my email, but checking his website to see if the review had dropped. <laughs> and it, it's like worse than waiting for Christmas when you're a kid, um, So his, his review came out and it was really positive. Like he thought the technology was great. Um, he said, yeah, the prototype's a little rough, but you know, this is just a prototype. That's what they are. Um, and then people started ordering, which was for us was crazy. So I think we made like $70,000 and had, um, I think 300 orders on our Kickstarter, something like that. That's awesome. Yeah. So it's, um, it was really a testament to the power of marketing, um and having a good product but having the right people believe you have a good product and the power of influencers so i can't understate that enough for anyone else doing a or sorry overstate that enough but um for anyone considering doing a a startup like you have to have your marketing in order you have to have a good story behind it and if it's something people can relate to and if it's something people can discuss and and point their fingers at and it's unique and creative and it doesn't even need to be unique and creative um, for the idea the marketing i think has to be but that really drew attention to it and it um it catapulted us to this level where we've got a successful kickstarter uh, which lots of companies have done and then many of them (laughs) completely collapse on themselves and that was always the, the caveat and Ray's um in his initial review was like if these guys can pull it off, it's going to be a neat product. But I think their timeline's tight. I think, you know, it's going to be difficult because a lot of the the product kickstarters fail.
1: And what's the what what do they fail? Uh, what's the the cause of failure there in Kickstarter? Because this is something I don't know much about at all.
0: The the number one cause of failure is either mismanagement of money or not understanding what your product costs. Um right. So lots of people can get things made. You can go to China for example, give a design and then they'll make it. Um it's just a lot of people don't realize this is what you need to budget for all these different areas. And to be honest, we weren't really that different. Like we we had maybe a bit better of an idea of what things cost, but we probably didn't do our due diligence enough. And we I guess we, we were fighting with this problem of having creeping costs or just a few things that were undefined. So we had a – it was actually my brother's machine shop did a lot of the work. And they were billing us um, hourly instead of by part. So it was very difficult mm. to break down this is exactly what this piece costs. So having a, an accurate bill of materials, we didn't know what we could make them for. We didn't know what we could sell them for. Uh, we had an assumption that we could make them at a certain cost but we had no proof. So um, probably what I would recommend before anyone starts manufacturing anything is have a very accurate idea of what it's going to cost and try to take in account, into account all your scrap counts, all any other costs that add up, and then add marketing on top of that and try to budget everything in advance. Because if you can't do it, even if you have a $20 million Kickstarter, um, if you can't manufacture it for low enough cost, um, then it's just, it's not going to work. And, and I think that's, that's really what trips up a lot of people.
1: Right. So what I hear here is, um, you guys are, you know, two engineers who have a great idea who, um, got hooked up with, uh, you know, probably the influencer in our sphere who gave you a, a positive review or at least a review that was, uh, you know that that said that there's a lot of promise here um but there's so much that you know you guys had to learn on the fly or you had to have somebody show you how to do um how do you how do you hurdle that like how do you how are you ever good at everything because you have to be good at so many different disciplines uh that are probably outside of your immediate area of expertise like how did you how do you handle that
0: I think the number one step is realizing that you're not good at everything. And for some oh, right. people, that's that's actually a big leap. And there are a lot of early CEOs who, um, who just assume that they can do everything and can't. So sometimes it's better to pay people to do things. And yeah, you might save a few dollars initially, but then you'll end up spending more in the long run because you've got to go back and redo it or it's just not effective. So... Yeah, um, just realizing what you're good at and realizing what you're not. I think that's one of the biggest strengths that any individual at any point in their career can have is just understand your weaknesses. Um, because if you try to do something, like if I try to do marketing, uh, it's not going to go well. I could spend a lot of money and <laughs> just random random tries for things and then not get anywhere or be even worse off if it's done poorly.
1: Right. Knowing your strengths, just like just yes. like a triathlon, you know, you kind of race to your strengths. This is a, I don't know, we probably draw a parallel here.
0: Yeah. You can't quite pay someone else to do the run for you. But, uh... <laughs> Can you imagine? Although uh, <laughs> later in our show, we will
1: have a, you know, we'll, we'll talk about how when somebody else does the run for you, you know, in a Ooh, big I, race.
0: I like that foreshadowing. Ah. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> So um with the startup though like realizing what your weaknesses are and then either asking for help or even looking out to the the startup community because a lot of cities now have this great support network of um like startup incubators and just people who have done it before and i would say 95% of the people who have done it before are wanting to help out other people and it's the same with me like i would love to point out the mistakes that i've made um which is an exercise in humility, but, um, you don't want to see someone else fall into the same trap that you did. And going back to the understanding of having the cost nailed down, like there were times where it was really tight for money, where it was like, okay, we need this order to come in before we can pay for a supplier. Um, just because things get used up faster than you expect. And when you start off, you're like, oh, I've got this massive budget. There's no way I can fail. And that disappears just like, like a snap of the fingers. Like there's, it's. It seems like there's a lot until there isn't. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's just, it, yeah, it, it really catches you off guard. Um, another thing that happened, and this is where I'd say like have a contingency plan, but we were taking pre-orders, which um, we found out was against PayPal's policy. So they actually froze oh. our account and said – unless you uh can ship these couple of pre-orders or these prove that you've shipped these orders we're going to freeze your account and they had a 21 day leeway i think between when you can take money and when you can deliver product so um i was in sweden at the time talking to who became one of our distributors and one of our investors um so we got this call from paypal and this is like the worst possible news and meanwhile i'm in sweden um, yeah, because
1: your cash flow just dries up instantaneously.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was like we had $30,000 in our PayPal account and now it's not accessible. So it's like, oh, well, what now? <laughs> so how do we do this? And and they said, OK, prove that you've shipped these 10 units um, and then we'll release the money. And the next 10 units that we shipped were those ones that they had asked for. So I will, I will say that, I mean, they gave us a little bit of leeway because they could have said, prove that you shipped every unit, and then we would have been done. Um, but there were moments like that, and that comes to, I would say, misunderstanding or mismanagement of cash flow. And having a proper advisor, or proper um, financial person on your team is absolutely critical. So they will push for proper management and proper savings of the funds, um, and and just having contingencies for things like this. And it was a really uncomfortable period, like, basically, the first two years of our existence. um, It was a full time, more than a full time job, we weren't paying ourselves. And it was extremely stressful. So it's like the worst possible thing that you can imagine. It's it's like self torture, because, you now feel responsible for, um, for people's money, because you're holding on to it, they expect a good final product that you want to deliver on. And and you just, you're, you're carrying all that weight with you. And some people don't care. Some there's unscrupulous people out there and you see it occasionally where they go and buy themselves nice executive suites and cars and things like that. And then, Oh, Hey, we're out of money. Sorry, everyone. And then close down their company. And that was definitely not something we wanted. Like it weighed on me every minute of every day that, Hey, we've got, you know, 300 plus people are expecting a a product that's of good quality. And it's, it's just, it's so stressful. Like it eats you up inside and it's, it's really hard to explain unless you're, you've been in that position. So I would say, unless you're willing to take on something that's completely unglamorous um, and just highly stressful, then, you know, avoid startups at all costs. So Uh, art's favorite piece of advice when someone asks him about a startup is don't (laughs) so
1: (laughs) (laughs) put it on a t-shirt
0: yeah yeah exactly so it's um yeah not a glamorous lifestyle not you know it's it's got its excitement there's there are fun parts and there's feelings of accomplishment but i would say for the most part it's just adding stress to your life and probably taking away years and just adding ulcers and things like that um yeah. So, it, I mean, it was a wild ride. We obviously got through it and we kind of graduated to the next phase where um, we had this acquisition. But uh, trying to navigate the first couple steps of a startup and keep the cash flow going, were, um, we were pretty overhead heavy. And that was just the nature of um, the product, just having to work on like the business development and engineering at the same time as we've got um, essentially one person um, doing all the the manufacturing. So mm-hmm. it, it cost us a lot of money to manufacture the trainers and we were barely operating at any kind of profit. Um, so even though people look at these things and say, Oh, that can't cost, you know, $500 to make. Uh, <clears throat> the reality is that, um, the, the parts themselves are a small part of that cost. So you're running a business and all the overhead on top of that. And as a coach, I know you, you understand like, you've got a reasonable amount of overhead that you've got to worry about. So it's not necessarily just the hourly rate that you're trying to charge, but there's, you know, keeping the lights on at home and everything. Sure.
1: Well, I used to, I used to also run a studio, right? So when I'm now I'm a lot leaner than I was, you know, two years ago when I had the space and I had, you know, those, the, the physical, yeah, the physical space overhead. That's, that's a really big one. I remember when I was, uh, I was in, before that I was um, in uh, construction and we, I ran um i helped run a, a contracting company and it was the same thing like our overhead was what killed us every year <laughs> we made money on our projects and then well, yeah <laughs> and then we had to for you know the toronto rent would uh would kick us in the butt at the end of the year each
0: time yeah and i think in terms of rent you're not alone especially in toronto like there's things like that that contribute and we we ran the startup out of my house for the first year and a half before we had a shop so it was uh, yeah, I mean it was it was pretty pretty much the classic startup story where I was working in my kitchen with uh you know my cats wandering around all day with a couple other people um who may or may not have liked the cats as much. So um <laughs> uh, so it overall it was um you know it was a pretty interesting story. It was a wild ride. Um I would say that But it has a happy ending, right? Yeah, yeah. And I mean we're still going through some of the um some of the stress, like any company, any job has a lot of stress involved with it. But uh, we did finally get uh, acquired by four eyes. That's great. Uh, Well, uh, let's, uh, let's move on to our next um, um, short story. Before we do move on, um, if anyone has any specific questions about startup, um, that was kind of an unstructured way of looking at it. And it was just kind of rattling off the top of my head. But if there are specific questions about what we went through, I would be more than happy to talk about them in future episodes. So maybe that's something we can do a follow-up on.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we'll put it out to our listeners if, if anyone's considering, uh, especially a startup in this space. I, I think Andrew is, a, is an excellent resource for you.
0: All right. Uh, so you started to introduce our next topic there, and then I cut you off. <laughs>
1: Yeah. So our next topic um, started as a listener question and became a kind of an interesting thought experiment that we don't uh, have a really good answer to. So this is a listener question that we're that Andrew and I are going to talk through a little bit now. And then we're going to put it out to you, our listeners, um, especially a few of you who who we may name by name towards the end of this uh, to see what thoughts you have on this uh, on this. So the uh, the question comes from uh, one of our longtime listeners, Michael Lind from Toronto, who um, perhaps thinking of the the recent success of the Ineos One Five Nine project, which of course you know Kipchoge broke the two hour marathon record. Um, so he asked, "What? How would I design the fastest possible Ironman course?" And so, this is a, a really interesting and not altogether straightforward question, right, Andrew?
0: Yeah, there's there's a lot of different things that come come into play with this, and we can talk over some of the variables. But uh, I think it's a super interesting question.
1: So, we, if drawing that parallel from you know, say, Breaking Two or the Ineos project, um, the there they had to contend with obviously weather and uh, and elevation, and uh, obviously they're trying to make weather optimal for running, uh, in terms of temperature, um, and wind and elevation, they're trying to keep to a minimum because obviously they don't, you know, they don't get paid for running up hills to, to break the two hour marathon. Um, and then they were also somewhat concerned with aerodynamics because at the speed that, that, uh, Kipchoge was running, then aerodynamic drag is no longer trivial, uh, for most runners, I would say probably is closer to trivial than important. Uh, most most running speeds, most mortal speeds, um, but certainly not at his not at his speeds. Um, but if you're talking about an Ironman, which you know clearly contains a 180k bike course, then aerodynamics become a uh, a very important thing to consider. And there is an interesting trade-off between performance um, at altitude on the bike because of the role of or the effect that altitude has on aerodynamic drag, as well as obviously on the lower partial pressure of oxygen.
0: So yeah, there's um, well. Why don't we start off in order, actually? Um, so if we're looking at the swim, uh, water density doesn't change a whole lot at high altitude compared to low altitude, but you are getting a lot less oxygen. Um, so my my vote would be for the fastest swim, like a reservoir or even a river or something like a canal that's blocked off that has no current assuming that we're not taking advantage of like down current swims which is just at that point it's not fair um then obviously we would want a down current (laughs) swim i remember (laughs) swimming like a 103 pace one time in
1: uh in chattanooga that was a really good swim for me
0: well actually um quick aside the the story i have from chattanooga is not actually racing there but i went there with uh, cody beals um and i I think we touched on this with the episode with him, but uh, looking I think at...
1: We mentioned it in another episode.
0: I oh, okay. Yeah. Um, they had a ton of rain and there's a whole bunch of mountains there. So it all funnels into the same river. And they uh, um, basically... A log would have done a 45-minute swim floating downriver, uh, so they were estimating that the winning time would have been around 19 to 20 minutes for the Ironman swim. So we're looking at like a was that 30 to 40 second per hundred meter pace? Yeah, that's uh, not bad. Yeah, no, that would have been okay. I think that would probably take the cake, unless you're like in a full river uh, that's you know heading towards a waterfall or something. That would probably be the only thing that would be faster, but. Um, That aside, my vote would be for a nice calm swim where you have minimal waves, um, you have minimal wind and high density air so that you can get the most oxygen per breath.
1: Yeah, I would also add. I would, I would also add. Obviously, wetsuit legal. Um yes. So you yes. want it to be, you know, cool enough that it's comfortable in a wetsuit, um, which I guess is fairly, you know, well, there are strict rules, but you know, what's what's comfortable in a wetsuit is is individual. So there's probably a little bit of a range there. Um, I would say I would want overcast because I don't, you know, I don't want the sun in my eyes for sighting. Um, no wind to keep the waves down and saltwater or
0: freshwater. Well, saltwater is it's uh more dense so it's it gives you more buoyancy so it essentially accentuates the effects of the wetsuit so you'd probably want salt water there as well and i i'd even forgotten about temperature which is something i never thought i'd say but um it's uh <laughs> Andrew. yeah like there's clear performance advantages uh with having the 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 lower body temperature where you're not at the verge of overheating so you'd want something that's maybe a little bit cool that you're kind of at a comfortable temperature when you come out as opposed to being comfortable when you get in and then overheated when you come out
1: right yeah that makes a lot of sense okay so transition obviously right on the uh right by the uh (laughs) right by the swim exit and the the bike exit right there too to minimize the, the the transition time but that's kind of a trivial point um let's talk about the bike
0: well, let's actually draw from history on this and looking at the hour record, which is a really good proxy for high long distance bike performance. And what we often see is that places like Mexico City are um, are some of the, the top contenders for the fastest um, the fastest times. And the reason for that is you are getting a decrease in aerobic performance just because there's slightly less oxygen in the air, but your drag is actually dropping off at a faster rate initially. So you're losing on one, but you're gaining slightly faster on the other, and that will peak out at some point, and then you'll just start to lose performance overall. But um, I think between seven and nine thousand feet is kind of what I've heard as the sweet spot for the the hour record for cycling. So um, getting out of your saltwater ocean swim, um, I think we we're off air talking about taking a chairlift up to seven thousand feet, <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, and then doing a a bike course from there so what would you want for a wind and sun conditions and road conditions then
1: um so just for our, our you know most of us that are in metric that's just that's just over 2,000 meters 7,000 feet it's just over 2,000 meters so two to 2,500 meters um the the real question is, of course, you know we're being a little bit flippant with the whole chairlift idea because it would be <laughs> ideal to end up at two thousand meters or seven thousand feet and not have to actually haul your ass up there, which is which would obviously cost quite a bit of energy and qu- quite a bit of time. But in this like fictitious, you know, magic mountain slash Canada's Wonderland world of <laughs> of, of manufactured Ironman racing, if you could get if you could take an elevator up to the, mat- the top of the mountain. Um, and you know obviously your time would be paused for this elevator ride. Um, in terms of in terms of conditions, I would want uh, I think unless we're doing point to point and it's a tailwind the whole way, uh, generally winds in my experience are going to be uh, a net negative um, even if you have an out back course. Uh, and as far as you know sun we, we talked quite a bit about thermal regulation, so I want less thermal you know, Thermal flux. I want less heat coming into my body, so I would take an overcast day any day. Um, and then temperature-wise, you know, again, it depends on how much heat you put out, but on the cool side is always a little bit better. So something in the in the upper teens or maybe the just just twenty degrees would be where I would love to be for that bike.
0: Yeah, I'd say like eighteen to twenty degrees is probably the sweet spot for me. Any colder than your feet get cold, and any warmer, and then you start to overheat. So at least that's my experience, but. Um, yeah, the, the road surface itself, um, Uh, that actually can play a pretty major role. Um, the rolling resistance goes up, but also I'd say your fatigue, if you have something that's kind of bumpy and, um, I forget what you call it, like the, the chip seal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the one. Um, but that just takes so much energy out of you where you're just kind of vibrating the whole time and it's just uncomfortable (laughs) and it's like your arms get tired, your legs get tired, you lose focus. And that's actually more of a mental taxation than a physical one, I'd say.
1: I, you know what? Now that you're talking about it, you're I, you're I think you're absolutely right. There's definitely, it does take a lot more out of you. And you're saying that it's mental. I suspect that your body's passively stabilizing. Like when you're vibrating, mm-hmm. your body's trying to stay in one place. So it's trying to respond to those, to, to that like minute, repeated inputs of, you know, displacement is what really what's happening, like your bike is moving under you. So I would, I would be willing to bet that there's some kind of process, both mental, because your body has to control your muscles, but muscular to, you know, to keep yourself stable. Um, Yeah, that's, that's a good point. So you're probably like, you know, consuming some kind of non trivial amount of metabolic energy to work the muscles, but also the, kind of subconscious, you know, keeping yourself balanced kind of neuromuscular activity that that your brain's always doing anyway, but now you're just doing more of it when you're when you're on a bouncier uh surface. Again, I have no no evid- no, you know, rigorous evidence to support this. This is just something that I thought of as we were talking about it.
0: So as far as hilly versus non-hilly, um, there's one argument that says, well, you're at the same potential energy if it's a an out and back, uh, or you end up at the same transition if it's not point to point. Um, so any hill that you go up, you recover the energy from. However, uh, my argument would be when you're going up, you're, you're not actually – losing as much energy aerodynamically. Um, mm-hmm. But when you go down, you're you're gaining that drag a lot faster. So a small increase in speed results in a lot more energy loss um, in terms of the overall energy consumption for the entire race. So if you have a fixed energy input, you're you're depleting it faster by doing this constant uphill and downhill, um, even though you might be essentially regaining the potential energy that you've spent going up that hill. Um, so I think and it's, it's pretty intuitive, I'd say, but just a flat course is probably the fastest way to go.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think anyone who's ridden, you know, uh, if you ride flatter, you're, you're for the same effort, your speed's going to be higher. And that's exactly for the reasons that Andrew outlined is when you don't, you don't get that, that kind of that bang for your buck on the downhill, um, that you do for, you know, when, or that you have to invest in, in getting up the hill in the first place. So it's, and it is hundred percent because of, you know, aerodynamic drag. I wonder if rolling resistance plays a role, but I'm sure aerodynamic drag would be a bigger one. Yeah. Because rolling resistance is linear, right? And drag is is cubic.
0: Yeah. So I think you'd um you'd probably get a net zero with the rolling resistance. Like you'd you'd lose or you'd have lower yeah, right. lower resistance on the way up and then higher on the way down. But like you're saying, it's it's generally proportional to your your speed as opposed to the cubic relation. Um, okay, so we've finished our bike at record pace now. And what would you want for a run? So a run. Uh, what would I want for a run? So
1: runs are is, runs are interesting because I think, especially in an Ironman, a lot of it has to do with there's there's a there's a large role to play for non-physical factors. So what I mean by this is you know psychological factors. So I'm going to start with some things that are maybe a little bit less obvious. Uh, I want awesome crowd support. Like I want the streets Ooh. lined, you know, cheering for me as I go for my <laughs> my <Iron> Man <laughs> bid here. Um, with supporters, uh, that is something that I think is really helpful at towards the end of a really long race um, for most people. So I want really great crowd support.
0: That's that's actually a really good point um, because that can be a huge impact. It's kind of like the home field advantage that people often talk about with team sports. Yeah, absolutely. And would you want a looped course or something that's just a single loop? So I think there's there's
1: a lot of in my you know in my coaching experience I found a lot of um, uh, a lot of disagreement here. I don't think there is a good consensus. And correct me if I'm wrong. Well, I mean you can't really correct me. Or you can just uh, agree. <laughs> if you if you disagree with me, you essentially agree with me. Um, in that there is no consensus. I personally like laps because I am you know I I want I want to discretize my course like break it up into little chunks so i can say okay now i'm done you know 25 percent, if it's a four lap course or something like that whereas other people the thing that they struggle with is that when they see that finish line when they're finishing lap one and they see the finish line and they have to go out on lap two of however many that's really hard so that's you know emotionally can be very difficult thing to do when you're already pretty beat up um so If I'm doing it, I want laps. I want like multiple laps of the same of the same thing because I'm you know that's just the way that my brain operates. I would take like four or five or even six laps, you know. I probably wouldn't. I wouldn't want to do it, you know, to get ridiculous. I wouldn't want to do it on a 400 meter track, um, (laughs) which would be horrible. But um, but you know, I would want I would want laps. Yes. What about
0: you? I think I'm actually the opposite for that. I would probably want a single. There you go. A single loop. So yeah, that one I would say is completely personal. If we take our sample size of two people, we've already got a fifty-fifty <laughs> split. So. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would want
1: excellence, uh, excellence on course nutrition support. Like I want to be able to drink when I. I, w- I want to have water or drink whatever drink when I want to be able to have a drink. So um, I will almost always carry water on long course races, even though I probably don't need to just because that psychological effect for me of I'm thirsty, I want to drink now not 700 meters from now. Um, that is very distru- That's like that's noise in my brain that I haven't learned how to shut off yet. So I will pay the penalty of like carrying a little bit of extra weight so that I can I know I have it all the time. So in in this imaginary course, I would have eight stations. Like, I, it would be like a nonstop buffet, basically.
0: Okay, okay, buffet marathon sounds good. Um, I would say ice is the big thing for me. Like, nutrition's important, oh, but having yes. available ice is for me a very big part of it because I overheat apparently very easily, and you just you you want to have that available when you need it. So, but if
1: Andrew, if we're designing this course, we can just say it's. 12 degrees centigrade. It's like, you know, it was, it was a little bit warmer up in the mountains when we were riding. Uh, but now we've come down to sea level. This is of course, completely backwards to how it would probably work <laughs> in real life. But, uh, you know, we've, we've turned down our, our master thermometer and, or thermostat rather. And so now we it's, you know, it's, uh, 12 degrees okay. and you, you're probably, you can probably thermally manage at 10 to 12 degrees. I think those are kind of like, that's the sweet spot number. That's what Ineos, Ineos was looking for.
0: Yeah, and I've heard that um, for any record, uh, any marathoner will look for a cooler race that's kind of overcast, relatively flat, good running surface. And then, um, yeah, the, the nutrition is interestingly something that a lot of professional marathoners don't focus on that much. Um, I remember hearing, I think it was the Breaking 2 documentary, where one of the, the guys, I can't remember his name now, but he had never drank anything during a half marathon attempt. And it, he was a half marathon specialist, but yeah, you're only out there for an hour, but then he started drinking and realizing, Hey, (laughs) this feels a lot better. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think it's, it's definitely, especially, I think the, um, the East Africans were known for not paying a ton of attention to it. And now, but I think that's changing because they're, you know, everyone's looking for every last advantage and that's a pretty substantial advantage. So um and obviously we're not running an open marathon we're running a marathon off the bike and so it's uh you know you're 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 entering it at least somewhat depleted to begin with so every little bit counts at that point
0: absolutely um surface what would you want for a surface like i think we can probably agree that a relatively flat course would be fast but um running surface because there's concrete there's like hard pack trail there's asphalt So
1: I'm going to try not to butcher this study that I didn't even read, but I I heard somebody tell me about. So this is like a broken telephone. So, you know, beware. Um, But they were, it was, um, it was actually on, you know, my, one of my favorite (laughs) resources, Michael Erickson's, um, that triathlon show. And he was talking to one of the, uh, one of the folks who had done the testing for Nike's 4% shoe. And, um the um the case that this gentleman was making was that most of the uh obvious effect was in the foam and rather than the carbon plate and this is not the point of this conversation but the point was that any kind of squishy foam is going to have a little bit more of an energy return so to and the upshot of this would be to make you a more efficient runner um so I believe he said this, so I'm gonna try not to misquote him. I believe he said that uh, rubberized tracks have more of an energy return than concrete or asphalt. So I don't remember how large the magnitude of this effect was, but if there was, you know, if it was if it was noticeable, I would say um, a rubberized track would probably make for the fastest race. With an important caveat, Um, just like wearing different shoes, running on different surfaces uh, requires a little bit of, you know, specificity training. So if you're, you know, if you're going to be running my hypothetical marathon on a rubberized track surface, now, again, it's not 800 or well, 400 meter track. We, we said that's off the table. <laughs> so it's a, it's a nice long winding, you know, uh, scenic, uh, loop, but, uh, on a rubberized running surface, uh, provided you've trained your long runs, especially, uh, on that surface. Cause if you haven't, that could be, you know, you could be in for, A bit of a a rude awakening.
0: And I do remember seeing, or some people justified the the decrease in the marathon or just any running record time being related a lot to technology and rubberized tracks was one of those things. And then shoe technology was another thing that came up. Um, So it's, it is interesting. um, And I hadn't thought of that. Just because you don't often encounter rubberized tracks that you're using for long distance runs. Um, But yeah, I think that would be incredibly fast. And then it'd be lower impact as well. So you'd have probably less recovery time after the race. Right. So um,
1: to summarize, our run surface would be, or our run course would be flat. Uh, Whether or not it would be uh, one big loop or multiple loops, that's up to the individual participants. This is your like bespoke Ironman that we're designing here. Um lots of uh lots of encore support around ten or twelve degrees in terms of temperature, maybe a little bit warmer. Um uh, overcast, uh rubberized surface, no wind, a lot of crowd support.
0: Did I forget anything? No, no, I think that's I think that's it. Um unfortunately this sounds like a really boring race though. <laughs> It, it, no, a lot of no, 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 support. no. I it mean, like, just in general, it be... <laughs> it's like a flat course everywhere. It's really, you know, no rolling hills. It's um, that's true. Yeah, maybe not the most exciting race. So going fast for me isn't necessarily like it feels good to go fast, but it's not necessarily the most important thing.
1: This is true. I mean, this is this is something that's been talked about a little bit in in the circles about how. You know, everyone's trying to get their 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 Iron Man time down, and you know, both in professional athletes and amateur athletes, and how times are creeping ever lower. That's hint, hint. What we'll talk about next. <laughs> um, but um, the kind of the this, you know, some people bemoan the fact that the spirit of the sport is 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 lost in that. So the spirit of the of the Iron Man competition, which um, ostensibly is to do something that's really hard, right? Like an Man, it's really hard to
0: do. So to, yeah, so to making it easy is kind of like backpedaling.
1: <laughs> exactly. Like what's the point of making the easiest, hardest thing, right? So, um, I'm, I'm with you on that. I think, uh, one of the reasons that, uh, that I like, racing certain races is because they're, they nowadays I'm changing my tune nowadays is because they present a kind of a unique challenge. And, you know, the, the taking an elevator to 2000 meters so you can ride your bike, um, <laughs> seems like obviously it's, it's, you know, it's a joke, but, uh, it, it seems like, it seems like the, the, uh, the utmost of, uh, of, uh, defeating the purpose. <laughs>
0: So I guess as the last topic that we wanted to cover here, there was some pretty exceptional news. Um, and I was kind of excited about this, actually hearing that this Legends team had been put together as a relay for the Bahrain 70.3 race. And the outcome was n- like, it was definitely impressive, but it's not exactly what you would have expected. <laughs> um, so the, the team itself, uh, it consisted of a few names you probably know. So, Mo Farah, who's an Olympic gold medalist, um, he did the run. Mark Cavendish, and I'm going backwards here for no reason other than maybe recognize recognizable names but uh mark cavendish did the uh the bike and he's fairly well known in the cycling world for better or for worse i guess uh, well he's, he's he's a powerhouse one way or another yes regardless of what you actually think about him yes that's right uh and then chloe mccardle from australia did the swim and she's a an olympic open water swimmer so You would expect putting together a team like this would just absolutely crush anyone else uh, because we've got some of the people who are the best at their respective sports, um, albeit maybe they haven't trained specifically for this event, but, um, but you would expect a pretty phenomenal time. And they put that together. But there is a huge caveat here. They were still not able to place first in the race, which is absolutely insane to me.
1: Yeah, that's it is. uh, So it's uh, Christian Blumenfeld of Norway uh, crossed the finish line first and also set a seventy point three all time record. You know, beating I believe it was oh, was it Ferdino's time or was it? uh, was it brownlee's time that was lowest either way they were like they were in the th- i think they were in the low 330s so he crushed that record with 32521 and managed to beat the, this all-star team of uh, of these you know three individual single sport specialists while doing it
0: so these splits are just phenomenal so 22 minutes and 26 seconds for a 111 swim per 100 meter swim pace which yeah, I can maybe sprint at that speed for maybe a hundred meters. Um, so that's just crazy. Uh, the The course, which um, beforehand we, the, the bike course we were discussing, might have been a little fast, or at least it had favorable conditions. So forty eight point two kilometers an hour for a one fifty two oh three bike split, um, and then after putting together, let, these- let
1: that sink <laughs> in for a second. That that, that 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 speed for for ninety kilometers.
0: From what I remember, um, some of the Tour de France uh, time trials over forty kilometers, professional cyclists have gone slower than that, and that's not saving their legs for a run. Um, yeah. So yeah, just and he didn't even have the fastest bike split on the day. He was
1: uh, there were there were two splits that were that were faster. So the, the 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 guy who finished second and the guy who finished third both biked a, a very marginally faster bike split. So he wasn't even an outlier on the bike.
0: I was actually looking at the timing, and between him and second place, they were less than 11 seconds apart coming into transition for T2, not even T1. Yeah. So they were neck and neck the entire time. And like that's just phenomenal, Like those kind of speeds, and for two people to do those kind of speeds all the way through the bike. Um, but what really struck me is the run, because at that point, as a triathlete, you're pretty fatigued, so you're not going to be putting in the time that you would expect for an open run uh where you're fresh coming into it and he outran mo farah (laughs) which is (laughs) that that shouldn't have happened um so i'll i'll admit that mo probably didn't put in maybe the preparation and the, the time that would be needed to really optimize this race but still like that that is phenomenal a 107 run split
1: yeah 107 flat which is yeah which is
0: crazy obviously off the bike in a in a race
1: like this after that kind of bike and that kind of swim
0: Yeah, so that's, I mean, just a a real, I guess it's just an example of human achievement. Like that's phenomenal to be able to do that and to have a single person put together splits that are faster than some of the best athletes in their respective categories.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Go triathletes. You know, this is you know, this is something that, that can make you guys make us all feel a bit better about ourselves. So we're... <laughs>
0: at least the best yeah for, in all those sport. Cyclists, <laughs> yeah. for all those cyclists who joke and say, Oh, triathletes aren't really cyclists, they're not really runners, and they're not really swimmers. Like I think this is proof that the, the best triathletes now are all three of those at a very, very high level.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like the the fact that the, the top three the top three uh,
0: guys rode faster than Cavendish did yeah yeah that's incredible so yeah. i can only dream of those performances so that's uh maybe that's where we'll leave things It's just thoughts and dreams of going that fast
1: <laughs> yeah with with mechanical doping only maybe
0: yeah that's right uh, even with that i think i'd struggle to hit those speeds
1: yeah seriously um well that'll do it for us today thank you as always for listening and uh and tuning in and um if you like the show Tell your friends and uh, give us a review uh, and a rating on iTunes.